We are uh, wrapping up, believe it or not, this series on movement in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bible, uh, just open it up to the last chapter, chapter 4, and we are going to dive into this last section. We've been talking for over the last 12 weeks about movement and how uh, God wants us to be about gospel partnership and gospel advancement, and that there are certain movements that we're supposed to be on, certain journeys that God is taking us on. And so that's really what uh, happens in this passage. Again, these three main ideas that we've been like tracking throughout this book all collide here again at the end of the chapter. Uh, by the way, the offering will be going around during this, so it's coming now. The Red Bucket interns, if you want to give. <clears throat> but we're, we're looking at a passage that's familiar to many of you. I mean, it's one that, it's got three incredibly familiar phrases. And generally, when we hear these phrases, we look at them through a particular lens. Let me give you an example. First phrase is that I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And usually when we think of it, we think of a picture kind of like this. We go, God, I'm content. Whatever beach you put in front of me, whatever thing you put into my life that looks something like that, I can handle it. And so we kind of think of that verse, and when we think of it, we think of this picture. The second phrase that we often hear in this is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can even climb ice caves. We get this idea that the verse is really about, I mean, I'm going to be a football player when I grow up, and I'm going to hit people really hard because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we get this, again, wrong perception of what the verse is really all about. The third phrase that a lot of times we hear is, God will supply all my needs. I love seeing that. My God shall supply all your needs. Philippians 4.19. little picture of gluttony right there. Excess. That God's going to give you more than you ever dreamed you could have. That prosperity will come your way if you only understand this verse. And so there's three phrases that kind of color our picture of what this passage is all about. And yet, in my mind, I see very clearly in here that this text is about movement again. It's about something happening in us and through us. If you're already at the passage, what I want you to do is look at verse 9. We, we talked about this last week, but I want to just kind of touch back on it again. Verse 9 says this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What Paul is doing here again is he's saying what he said to them a previous chapter before. Imitate me again. Imitate each other as we follow Christ. That what you've seen in each other, what you've heard from each other, what you've seen and practiced, learned, let's practice this together. Let's practice these things. So he starts off by saying that as we enter into our text. Let's look at it. Verse 10 through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers uh, who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul starts off in verse 9 and talks about this ideal of modeling. And then he moves into this section where he's really talking about the purpose of the letter. I sent this letter, and the main reason I sent it is to thank you for your partnership through generosity. That you gave a gift, it met my need, it supplied the work of the ministry, and I'm writing to thank you. It's kind of like when you get to the end of a novel and it kind of all makes sense why he has been saying what he's been saying. comes to this and he says, I want to thank you about your partnership. And you're going to notice in this text a movement from past tense to present tense to future tense. In fact, he says, I have learned in the past tense that I can in the present tense, and then God will in the future tense. There's three main principles here we're going to look at. They're this. One, generosity flows from contentment. Two, generosity is a kingdom investment. And three, generosity results in divine supply. That's what this text is about. And so we're going to look at each of those three. First one, generosity flows from contentment. What Paul says here really clear, and you can see it in the text, he says not that I, in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He talks about this idea of him being content regardless of the situation, whether in plenty or in need, whether in abundance or in want. In fact, the very place that he's writing this is in prison. He has no money. He's lonely. He's in prison. And he writes about this idea of contentment. Regardless of the circumstances, I'm content. And what Paul's really getting at is this idea that contentment is an internal disposition. It's not an external condition. So for Paul, it didn't matter whether or not he got money from the Philippians, and it didn't matter whether they sent a friend in Epaphroditus, all of what they did. And it didn't matter whether he had possessions, whether he had security, whether he felt comfort, whether all of those are external things. That yes, they would have adjusted his circumstances, but according to Paul, he said, they're not adjusting my level of contentment. That contentment is something that comes from within. I read an Ingrid Bergman quote that I kind of changed the, uh, the wording to, and it says this, Contentment is not having what you want. True contentment is wanting what you have. There's a big difference between the two. One comes from an internal motivation. One comes because internally you say, the circumstances I'm facing, the situation I have in life, I'm willing to be able to say that I'm in a place where I'm, I want that. I'm okay with that. It's where God has me at this stage. 
And so Paul is talking about this idea of contentment. But here's the reality. It's true in my life. I don't know if it's true in yours. But contentment doesn't come easy. I mean, I don't think we naturally gravitate toward contentment. And perhaps that's why Paul says that he's learned to be content. He actually says it's a virtue that's learned. It's something that's developed within us. So he said, I've learned in whatever circumstance, I've learned to be content. It doesn't come naturally. I don't think it's something that we're born with. In fact, I would venture to say that many of us as we were growing up, our parents didn't really help us with this idea of being content. I came across this uh, little book that was written, and a guy by the name of John Rosemond did a study on the whole idea of the epidemic of discontent among affluent suburban children. And he said that in affluent suburban American homes, on average, the typical five-year-old has 250 toys in his home. And the average five-year-old, well, actually not the average, every five-year-old has only lived 260 weeks. The point you're getting is every week a new toy. We don't learn contentment. It's not, I mean, we don't like get it from people. It's not just something we're born with. It's not something that we're fed by our society. It's something that we actually have to learn. Something we have to develop. But I think the reason we're not drawn toward it is because what happens often is we settle for a comparison. Contentment doesn't come because of this idea of comparison. I mean, I think comparison is pervasive. It's pervasive in all of our lives. It's pervasive in my life. Let me give you some examples. We compare our incomes with someone else. We compare our talents or our abilities. Maybe uh, we compare our personality, wishing we were more outgoing, wishing we were more a people person, wishing we had certain... uh, traits or characteristics that someone else has. Oh man, they're always so funny and I'm, I'm not. We compare our body composition. We compare the way we look. We compare whether someone else got the credit for it or whether I got the credit for it. Whether I got recognized or someone else got recognized. We tend to compare things like our roles at work, the number of our Facebook friends, our educational institution, where I graduated from compared to where you graduated from. Maybe we even compare our sports teams, how mine is better than yours. We compare whether we're in shape or not. We compare the homes we live in, the cars we drive. You get the idea. The list could go on and on. There's this idea that comparison happens, and it's so, so subtle. Just kind of, just all of a sudden, it's there. We're in a small group on Thursday at our house. We're all hanging out in the living room. We're talking. We're sharing. And at one point, <clears throat> someone's name came up, and, and they were going, well, what? I mean, like, who is he? I don't know if I know what he looks like or whatever. And I stood up, and I said, well, he's about my size. He, he kind of looks, he's about this tall. He's kind of got this build. And someone goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I think I know him. He looks a lot like you, but he's all muscle. <laughs> and right away, I'm like, at first, I'm going like, did you just say that? I mean, you haven't seen me without my shirt off. I mean, come on. Like, how do you even know? You can't compare. I don't know what was, what was more disconcerting, the fact that 
he said it and then kind of like looked like, oh, I can't believe I just said that. Or the fact that everyone else in the room went, ooh. Like, <laughs> but you get it. It's, I mean, it just happens. I mean, comparison happens. I, I make just the simple remark that, no, no, they probably, and then there's a comparison. It's so easy. You just kind of fall into this idea that I've got to somehow figure out if I'm a little bit better. And if I'm a little bit better, then I'm not content because i got to get a little bit better than the person that's still a little bit better than me. And if for somehow, a lot of us probably find ourselves on the other end of the spectrum, right? Where we always just feel a little bit less than what we should be. I don't know how many weeks go by that I say to Shannon, I feel like, man, I've, I've really been making some strides in this one area. But man, whenever I do, the other 10 areas that I'm working on all fall apart. And I'm just never content with it. I'm not okay. I want to keep, I think there's an idea of continuing to move forward, but this is this idea of where are we truly content? Comparison always leaves us kind of short, on the short end of the stick. If you want to move into a place of generosity, I think what Paul is saying is it's got to start with contentment, a disposition that's learned. The second one is that generosity is a kingdom investment. If you look down in verse 15, this is what you're going to see. And it says, In Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Let me pause there for a moment. I'm going to keep reading to, to talk about this idea of kingdom investment. But there, maybe you noticed this right at the beginning. But Paul basically says that their generosity was motivated by the gospel. I don't know if you've ever connected those dots before, but gospel and the dot of giving away money or being generous are connected in the Bible all of the time. See, what the writers of the Scripture don't do is connect religion with giving. They connect the gospel with giving. Let me give you an example. 2 Corinthians, Paul makes this statement. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. You see that? The motivation in that text that Paul's talking about is because God was generous with His gift of Christ, because Christ was generous in giving up all that He did for our sake, we in turn out of that generosity, become rich so that we can continue to give. It's motivated by the gospel. Let me encourage you this morning. Let me challenge you with this. Don't give just out of religion, religious duty. Don't give just because of this idea of obligation. And that's what religion is about. It's about obligation. It's about whether you feel guilty if you did or didn't give. But the point of the Scriptures, and especially in the New Testament, is that it's so much different than that. That giving is really about being motivated by the gift of grace that Christ has given us. And then out of that, we have this generous gospel. We have this generous quality because of what Scripture communicates. So don't give to feel better about yourself. Don't give if it's just about duty or obligation. Give because you've been blessed. Give because you want to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Give because you want to invest in the kingdom. Which is what the point he gets to here 
in the next couple verses. It says this in 17 and 18. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Verse 18. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift she sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He says uh, it's about kingdom investment. And what he does is he gives two illustrations or two kind of word pictures to help us get it a little bit better. One of them is a financial word picture. The second one is a sacrificial word picture. And both of these word pictures or illustrations have uh, something weird that happens in the equation. So like if you're about math, 2 plus 2 is always 4. But a lot of times in the scriptures, I don't know if you noticed this, but like 2 plus 2 somehow comes up to like 5 or 3. and doesn't always like work the way it's supposed to. These are two examples of that. The first one he describes is this financial image. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And here's where the accounting in this verse kind of goes strange, kind of goes weird. According to this verse, and this is a key point, according to this verse, when you give money away, when I give money away, when I'm generous, take it out of my account and give it away, what this verse says is it goes back into my account. That's weird. Generally, when you give money away, you don't see it again, right? You don't have it anymore. But the point of this verse is you give it away, you become generous with it, and when you do, it somehow ends up back in your account. It ends up in, in this spiritual account. It ends up in this kingdom account. It doesn't necessarily end up back in like your you know, state bank account. It ends up in this kingdom so when you're generous, the weird thing is you're actually investing. You give it away and you invest all at the same time. In fact, Kent Hughes makes this statement about giving. The truth is, the only money that we will see again is that which we give away. The only money that we will see again is that which we give away. See, our giving or our generosity is actually an investment. Let me describe it in, in the uh, case of missionaries for our church. Jamie and Leif Gustafson, or Leif and Jamie Gustafson that uh, live in Yulanyude, Siberia. When you give money to the Gustafsons, it doesn't just go to the feed Leif and Jamie and their kids family fund, right? It actually is about mission. When you give to that cause, it's actually about making disciples of the Boryat and Russian people fund, right? That when you give, when you invest in the kingdom, the return is the benefit of what God is doing in the midst of those people. Tommy and Allie Brown are right back here. Other missionaries of ours here at New Community. When you give out of your pocket to that account, the reality is you get a piece of the investment. That's amazing. That means that your giving will actually go to impact aviation students that will go around the world and use their gifts to share the gospel. It'll actually begin to prepare them to go to Africa, which is what God is continuing to lay on their heart. 
when you give and it goes to Brent and Amy, that your gift is an investment in refugees throughout this city and even around the world. That when you give to meet needs, it actually comes back into your bank account. It comes back into your credit. That's the, I mean, that's the cool part. And if you think about it, everything that happens when you give money towards something, you get a slice of that pie. I don't know if we think of it that way. But a lot of times, that, for me, that's a huge motivating factor. Let me give you a real, real personal illustration. Um, I have not probably kept you up to date as much as I have in the past on uh, Everson, our daughter. But uh, not this Friday, but the Friday before, uh, we actually got to stand before the judge, got all the final papers signed, and so now we have a fourth child. So our daughter is officially ours, which is pretty amazing, and we're so thankful. Thanks. But here's, here's what's amazing about that whole scenario. There are some of you in this room that knew about our desire to adopt, knew about God calling us to that, and you came up to us, unsolicited by us, and said, I want to be a part of what you're involved in. And I know that there are costs for lawyer fees. I know that there's costs for adoption fees. And what I want to do is I want to actually pay a little bit of money. I want to invest it in this action for the kingdom. Here, here's the deal. And here's what I'm not sure we totally get. You get a slice of that pie. Do you understand that? That means whatever... Everson grows up to be, you had a part in it. That if someday Everson has the chance, Lord willing, to lead someone to Christ, you realize that you have some of the investment on that return. That whoever she ends up being, if she follows Christ, if she, whatever she does with her life, everything, you've had an investment in that, Right? You played a part in that. So what is happening on the mission field, what happens in the life of a person that you give money to, what happens in the life of my daughter, it goes into your account. This is not money you just give away and you, you never see it again. This is money that you see for the rest of your life, right? Because it's an investment in something that matters. A second picture is this sacrificial image. So there's a financial image, and then there's this sacrificial image. And this is where the other equation kind of is weird. So not only do we give, and then it comes back into our account, but it's when we give, it actually is an act of worship to God. I mean, that, that seems weird again, right? It seems weird to be able to communicate it that way. But he says, very clear, Paul does, that your gift to Paul, was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable to God. So what he's saying is, you're very active giving. When you give money to meet a need, you're worshiping me. When you feed the poor, when you give money to mission, when you help out a particular cause, when you take care of a single parent, when you invest in something that's kingdom-oriented, it is an act of worship to God. I mean, all throughout the New Testament, it talks about this idea of, 
our words of praise should be a sacrifice to God. In Romans, we get this idea that your very life should be a living sacrifice. But here in this text, what it communicates very clearly is this, that the very act of generosity you're giving is immediately translated to a burnt sacrifice, fragrant offering to Christ. I mean, that's a pretty sweet deal, too. So not only am I giving and I get it in the count, I give and it's immediately this act of worship. It's an offering to Christ. And this is where I'm convinced that comparing kind of creeps back in. Because when I start to think about giving, and I start to think about sacrificing, and I start to think about how much I'm offering to Christ versus how much someone else is offering to Christ, I start to compare. I start to feel like, well, maybe I'm just not given the way I'm supposed to be given. You get the idea? Let me challenge you with this. Some of us, by nature, all of us, I think, fall into one of two categories, generally. We're either spenders or savers, right? Spenders tend to spend on things they're interested in or whatever, and savers look down on spenders, okay? Generally, that's the way it works, right? Like, you just waste money frivolously. Oh, my goodness, this is ridiculous. Here's the deal. If you're a spender, let me challenge you. This next month, decide what amount of that extra income that you just normally spend and you kind of wonder where it goes at the end of the month. Set that money aside and invest it in kingdom things. And say, this next month, I'm going to invest it. Okay? Those of you who are savers, and you go, yeah, see, spenders, you need to really do that. You need to invest that, right? I mean, I invest it in my 401k. And you, if you're a saver, instead of putting a little bit more away this next month, you need to, at the same time, pray and go, God, what is it, what amount over this next month do you want me to give away? Do you want me to, like, pull out of the account or not insert into the account so that I can, I can give it away? Because it's really about investment. And the question we have to ask is, are we investing in things that last? Are we truly investing in what lasts? The last thing is this. Generosity results in divine supply. Look down in verse 19. And I, I love this verse. It says, and My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I mean, that, what he's saying is that our generosity results in this fulfillment of a promise. That when you give, when you're generous, the result is, verse 19, that God will supply all your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. But listen, I told you at the beginning that a lot of times we take that verse and we kind of like think of it in one way, but we, what we do is we divorce it from its context. And what we generally think is that no matter what, God will supply all your needs. It's an unconditional promise. And the reality is the context makes it a pretty conditional promise, right? When you give, when you're generous, when you invest in kingdom, He meets every need. He supplies every need. There's no reason to fear. There's no reason to worry. When you give without motivation, the gospel motivation to invest in kingdom, He will, without a doubt, verse 19, supply every need. It's a promise. It's a promise. But I think that this is where, for a lot of us, the rubber meets the road, right? I mean, the question is, do we really trust verse 19? 
I think we trust some of the other verses, but when it comes down to it, do, are we willing to go, you know what, I believe verse 15 through 18, and I think God will come through with 19. But, I mean, that's the question. Do we really think, if and when I give, will God come through the way he says he will? And I don't know if that's a tension for you, but I think that's a tension for a lot of people. Will he really hold up his end of the bargain? Because if I give, I mean, I'm putting myself out there, can he come through? I had a good, good friend in Indiana, one of my best friends there, and uh, he, he was a giver, is a giver. I mean, he constantly looks around for needs in people's lives, and he will meet them. I mean, over and over and over. God has blessed him every time he does, and he continues to just keep giving. Well, because he's so generous, he's kind of built up a reputation. There are certain people that God blesses financially. They give in a certain way, and people kind of know it, right? And so those people are often tapped on the shoulder and asked questions, like they would come up to my friend, and, and someone would say, this couple, I remember a specific time, I'm with them, a couple comes up and goes, hey, uh, I just found out about this lady in our church, a single mom, and she's got a big need. Her refrigerator just broke. And I know that you meet a lot of needs, and I know that you could, you could provide her with a new refrigerator. Would you be willing to consider giving her some money? And my, my, again, my friend would constantly be looking for things and constantly giving things away, and he, would say, he said to this person, oh, I... I'd love to do that. I'd love to help out. But here, here's a, just a quick question for you. It seems that God didn't bring that need to my attention. He seemed to bring that need to your attention. Right? I mean, you're the one that's concerned about it. You're the one that's been praying about it. You're the one that even went out of your way to come to me and say, hey, I feel like we should meet this need. So it seems like God's working in you to perhaps meet that need. So let me ask you one question. Could you meet that need? And so let's say it's $500, and the person said, well, yeah, I, I don't think I can. That's why I came to you. And so you'd say, well, let me ask you a second question. Do you have $500? I mean, anywhere, in your bank account, at home, checking. I mean, do you, I mean, do you have $500? Every time, well, yeah, I mean, we do have, we do have $500. Well, would you consider giving it? Well, I mean, if I give that $500, um, I mean, what happens if, like, my refrigerator breaks? Or what happens if, like, I can't afford to pay my bill? Or what happens if, like, I was kind of saving that up for this thing that I was looking to get, and it's, I mean, it's a pretty cool thing I wanted to get. And if I do that, then I can't get that thing that I was looking to get? You get the idea. And so, like, several excuses later, um, well, here, let me, let me make a deal. Why don't you, if you feel like God is telling you to do that, why don't you meet that need? And I'll make you a deal. If at any time in the next three months after you meet that need, give the $500, get a new refrigerator, put it in your house, get it all set up. If any time in the next three months God does not hold up his end of the bargain, verse 19, if somehow your needs aren't supplied, if somehow something breaks down and you don't have the money for it, if somehow something does not work out for you and God does not hold up his end of the bargain, here's the deal. You come to me at any point. As soon as you tell me, God didn't hold up his end of the bargain, my needs have not been supplied, I'll pull out a checkbook, I'll write it for the exact amount you gave away, and I'll give it back to you. 
because I'm convinced that I'll take, I'll take, I'll be your backup plan. You need a backup plan? I'll be your backup plan. And you know why he said it? Because guess what? He's got a bigger backup plan, right? I mean, he's done that to over 10 couples. Guess how many people have come back? Zero. Zero. Why? Is it because he just got lucky? I mean, was he just rolling the dice? Oh, wow, 10 out of 10. Hopefully it's not a big one on the next one because one of them is going to come up and it's not going to be good, right? No. Why? Because there's a huge backup plan. There's a bank account that says it's according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I mean, we're talking, you can't even, Google, right? I mean, that's how much. Infinity, the biggest number you can imagine, right? That's what Google is. It's the biggest number you can ever imagine. And that's what he's saying is there's so much in store. That's a big backup plan. Let me challenge you. If God has been laying on your heart to give money away, if he has been saying to you, there's a need to meet, even if you know of the need that you should meet and you have the money and he's telling you to give it, give it. Give it. Be generous. If you need, I'll be your backup plan. Right? Because I'm willing to put a, a stake on it. I'm willing to say I think he's going to come through no matter what. I mean, I'm convinced. But all week long, I've been wrestling with one idea as I kept reading this verse. I kept reading this whole section, and I kept asking myself this question. Because I ask myself this a lot. <clears throat> How come we tend to always view the Bible just through our particular lens? And I think that's easy because it's just natural, right? But I started asking myself this question. How would people in Haiti right now, who read the same Bible we do, how would they read these verses? How would people in an African village read these verses? My sister lives in Ecuador. She reads these verses to desperately poor people in Ecuador. And what, what do they think when they get done reading it? You know what? I'm going to venture a guess. I'm going to venture that when they get done reading it, they feel convinced that God is calling them to be generous. I'm going to venture a guess and say, I think God's, they're saying, you know what? I realize if I give, God's going to supply my need. When we start to think of it that way, I start to ask myself, why is it that statistics in America communicate this idea that we ourselves aren't even willing to give out of our excess? When people around the world read this exact same passage and they say, oh yeah, I'm compelled to be a giver. I'm compelled to be generous. I'm compelled to invest in the kingdom. I mean, I've been wrestling with that all week because I'm convinced that the reality is that many of us in the Church of America have created a really good investment portfolio, right? We've got all the things that look right. We've got, we've been savers, we've been stewards, we've got one to two homes, a vacation place, nice cars, we've got a good 401k, we've been saving, we're, I mean, we're really set up, and you know what, I'm convinced more and more that in getting more, somehow we've settled for less. That in getting more, we've somehow lost out on this bigger theological, generous concept that just somehow doesn't compute into American values to Western ideals. Maybe really this whole passage comes down to whether we truly believe verse 19. 
Do we really believe that when he says, Jesus does in Matthew, you don't lay up treasures for heaven or, moth and, or in earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up treasures in heaven? Do we really believe that? When he says, don't worry about your own life, don't be anxious, but seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you, do we really believe that? Because I'm convinced we need to make our investment about kingdom. And generosity in the gospel calls us to do that. Let's pray. God, I am so convinced that one of the best and most awesome ways to live out following you, this idea of movement, of being a part of what you're a part of, is to actually make you our God and not money. To make you the motivation for generosity. God, I pray that you would cause us to be people who are eager to invest in lasting things. So somehow in the amount of much, this idea of getting more, somehow we seem to have come up with less. But I pray that this passage, this gospel, this truth, the grace that you have shown us will motivate us to, to invest. Because somehow in giving away, it comes back into the count. Somehow in giving away, it's this act of worship. Somehow in giving away, it actually allows me to be content. Somehow in giving away, I no longer am bound and enslaved to money, but I suddenly become free. Free to be about what you're accomplishing. Free to be about something bigger than myself. And God, I just... I ask that you would motivate us and encourage us in that. I ask, us, ask that you would create movement in that area. So as we worship you in these next few moments, as we pray and seek to really wonder what you are asking us to do today, pray that you might speak to us, that we might be willing listeners. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.